This conference will now be recorded. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. As always, you're listening to the ASSP Healthcare Practice Specialty Health Beat Podcast. I'm Corey Worden. I'm the administrator for the Healthcare Practice Specialty. And today, today we've got a great episode coming up. Today we're talking to Kelly Lombardo, who's got a long and fantastic career doing everything from emergency management and working over at the over at the Pentagon under Counter Seaburn um, Air Force Medical Services. And then also she'd been working in, in IT and developing adult adult learning and adult education. So she's done a lot of great stuff and uh, has a lot of great, great experiences and perspectives. So um, Kelly, short of me speaking for you, uh, if you would, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about, about yourself, your experience, education, anything that you want to want to bring up, we'd appreciate it. Sure thing. So I got my start in the Air Force uh, in emergency management. And of course, a big part of that is training. And I didn't know that I wanted to be a trainer or an educator, but looking back before the Air Force, I think uh, I should have known that. You know, I, I started teaching elementary kids Spanish when I was in high school. I always tutored, you know, I was always kind of a teacher's pet. Training just made sense to me. Learning, learning was easy. I could always kind of outsmart tests even if I didn't know the answers. Uh, so I guess I probably should have known at some point that training was gonna be the career field for me. But working through the Air Force and teaching chem warfare classes and hazmat classes and you know all the other myriad things that we taught, I really learned both what is good training and saw a lot of what is less good training, uh, not effective training, and had the opportunity to really try out some new things, um, kind of in a low threat environment because you know if I was terrible at training, they could just move me to a different division and I could try something else. So it was really as an instructor at the emergency management school that I decided to pursue this as a career outside of the Air Force. So I went to school for education, got my master's degree in education while I was at the schoolhouse. And then when I got out in 2008, uh, I moved right into a training job uh, working for a nonprofit, teaching pretty much anything to just about any uh, government or uh, education institution that needed some help. So it was things like uh, customer service skills or interrelations between the front office and the skilled tradesmen, all the way to like teaching early childhood educators how to do literacy skills for little kids. Uh, So that was interesting. I've always ended up teaching things that I didn't necessarily know a whole lot about. And I think that that's kind of a unique perspective in education, because I think a lot of educators typically are people who were professionals in their field and know a lot about the subject. So they're subject matter experts. So they get called on to teach other people. Whereas in my case, I'm the opposite. I'm not a subject matter expert, but I have a background in education. So I come in to take that subject matter expertise and turn it into training and education that works for the learners. Cool. Yeah, that's definitely outstanding. A lot of a lot of great experiences and and definitely a lot of great work there. So, you know, over here in the in the safety world and also, of course, in the healthcare world that you're you're familiar with as well. Um, yeah, worked there too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, the the training and and education is hugely important, especially over in safety, because we find ourselves not only developing safety, you know, safety cultures via safety management systems and everything involved in that, but we we have, you know, an inherent need to 
teach other people how those things work so that they're able to translate that information to their people and down the line. Um, otherwise, of course, it doesn't matter what we put in place for safety protocols if, if there's not an understanding of the expectations and, and how to do that. Um, have you have you found over the years that um, adult adult learning and adult education principles have a, have a place in in safety and emergency management? Absolutely, because you can't just look at somebody and say, "Hey, you have to know this," because if you don't, someone might die. I don't know if you might remember that from our motivations when we used to teach for the Air Force in emergency management. Uh, more often than not, the lesson started with the reason you need to know this is because if you don't, someone could die. Well, first of all. Uh, in professional life, uh, people don't take well to being told that uh, most of the time. That's a pretty scary and intense thing, even probably in safety and healthcare. And even if you do tell people that, that doesn't necessarily give the learner the inherent motivation to learn the material. And that's the big difference with learners versus trainers is that trainers tend to think, okay, if I give them the logic behind this, and then pour this information into them, they'll retain it and they'll apply it. Whereas learners really need to have that inherent motivation and they have to have an emotional connection to what they're learning in order to really internalize it and then apply it. And I think that's the big thing that is often missing from adult education is that emotional connection and helping learners find that motivation to learn it. And, you know, often the motivation is, well, you have to, because this is compliance, so you have to take it. And that's not enough. So people will sit through the training, but are they actually gonna retain anything? And even more importantly, are they gonna be able to apply it? So I think you really have to help adult learners see the application almost immediately. Uh, you can't start with, you know, a 45 minute lecture on principles and then go into how to apply it. And especially in healthcare and safety, the application is pretty obvious, at least for the practitioners. So it should be the first thing you do with the adult learners is really help them get a handle on the application for it and then work backwards from there. So I think that's the thing with adult education is you kind of have to flip the script and work backwards from the end result to what they need to know and do to get there. And that's not typically how adult education is written, especially when you have a subject matter expert writing it, is they often think, what do I need to tell people? What, what do I need to give them? And really you have to think about it from the other direction. And I think that's the biggest fundamental is really just helping the learner and thinking about it from a learner's perspective. And I often think about it because I know as a training professional, as an educator, I'm the world's worst student because when I'm taking online training, you know, I will skip through it or let it play in the background. Or when I'm in a lecture, I'll let my brain wander. And, you know, it's because I have this sense of, you know, knowledge of how training should work. And so I often check out. And I think you have to realize that a lot of your learners are going to do that unless you give them a reason not to check out. And so I think having that perspective in your head of thinking of yourself in the learner seat or thinking about somebody else in the learner seat as opposed to yourself and what you feel you have to give to them. And a lot of training in this world is compliance based. We have to do it because 
some regulatory agency says we have to, or, you know, we have to do it because then we have a chain of paperwork. So if something goes wrong, we can say, well, we trained them. You know, we're not, we're not liable. We've given them the training. And that only takes you so far. You really have to dig deeper and figure out what will get your learners interested in the content and in the application. And you really have to hit that emotional core, which a lot of us are very logic based, especially in this world, in training and in safety and in healthcare. You know, we don't think we're driven by our emotions. We think, okay, we're logical. But human beings, just by nature, are not fully logical. Uh, so I think a lot of the principles coming out of behavior economics are really useful because they are principles of how to modify the environment so that it's harder to do the wrong thing than it is to do the right thing. And you have to apply that to training. You have to make it harder to not learn it than it is to learn it and apply it, which you know sounds like a simple principle, but is certainly not simple to put in practice. It's always easier to just give a lecture or just, you know, provide a PowerPoint and say, here, read this and go do it. But most of us don't learn how to do things by being told them. So I think that's the big principle and fundamental is give them the reason to learn it and then help them access the information rather than trying to just pour it into them. Help them discover it, help them see how to apply it right away. Yeah, that's excellent perspective. It's, it's interesting too. One of the things that I almost always find myself referring to when I when I do education or or training is there's a you know a fundamental just enormous difference between telling someone to be careful and telling them how to be careful and why mm -hmm. they should be careful. And then, Absolutely. like you said, yeah, like you said, you know. Even if you go up there and say, if you don't do this, then somebody could be hurt or somebody could get sick and then explain how to do that. And unless they uh, are able to internalize the reason for it and walk through the steps and know how each step relates to the process, you know, there could be a gap there. And um, for sure. Like you said, and can I, can I make a point with that? Because you made a yeah, really please. good point. Like when you tell them be careful and you tell them somebody could be hurt, they've found through studies of emergency management and like why people don't prepare for things like hurricanes and earthquakes and why people stay is because we're programmed to interpret future events based on what has already happened to us. So if we've lived through some sort of event and the impact was pretty minor, we're programmed to be like, oh, well, this isn't that big of a deal anyway. Nothing's going to happen. There's no consequences. It's going to be fine. You know, it'll be a little windy, but no big deal. And then all of a sudden, a big hurricane comes along and tears down the house, and you were totally unprepared for it. Even though, you know, the county, the state, everybody told you what to do, your brain was telling you, oh, no, I don't need to because my experience is this. And that, I mean, that's a primal instinct. So educators have to take into account those primal instincts of people are operating off of the experiences they've already had in life. And so people who have not experienced something severe are not likely to interpret the future as going to be as hazardous or as dangerous. So even if you tell them, be careful, somebody could get hurt, somebody could die, they're gonna subconsciously, probably not even consciously think, well, probably not. 
It's not going to be a big deal. It wasn't a big deal last time because that's, you know, that's how our brains are wired is to keep us alive. So if something doesn't feel like it's going to be a threat, we don't worry about it. And I'm not saying, you know, scare your learners. We, we don't want to terrify our learners, uh, but we want to definitely help them see that the impact could indeed be something more than what they're used to by showing them other examples uh, than what they've necessarily experienced. Absolutely. Yeah, you actually read my mind. That was um, the next thing that was on my mind there is ah. you, had referred, you had talked about how, um, you know, the difference between logic and reason versus looking at things through a, you know, a, either his uh, experience based or emotional, emotionally based prism is with safety, you know, like you said, if, if, if people's historical experience has been that something's not a high risk, then typically they may see the need for those safety protocols to be very low. And we've right. seen a lot of that. I'm sure you've seen as well, you know, with the pandemic over the last what, 22 months, 20 months. Um, uh, uh, yep. So many people they've, as a matter of fact, it's, it's, it's interesting. I was, I was talking to somebody on social media of all places, which I try to live in my <laughs> social media. Right. But, um, they had, they had sent me this message and they were expressing that they think that I'm a, you know, a paranoid hypochondriac basically. And there's no need for safety protocols and exposure prevention protocols. Ugh. And this whole thing is a, it's a global scam. You know, we're all being taken by the government. And, and so I just asked, well, why do you think that? I said, you understand that, you know, this is, I, I went, you know, here's all the indicators. It is a very serious situation. And what they eventually kind of what they eventually said was that they they knew someone that had COVID-19 and they did not they did not require hospitalization and at one point they went to the hospital in their community for a different reason and the hospital was not at capacity and so based on their singular experience mm -hmm. with one person who had the virus and one hospital and one community in the entire world that well, surely this whole thing is a conspiracy because the hospital was not at capacity and this person did not need hospitalization or a ventilator. Right. And so therefore this whole thing must be a scam. And yeah, that was the sad part is that number one, they had convinced themselves that they did not need exposure prevention protocol, you know, even something as simple as, as social distancing. And yeah. so they said, we're not going to do that, nor is my family or my kids. And then secondly, I'm going to tell everybody that I have any communication with not to do that either. And I said, well, you understand that, you know, your experience, first of all, of course, is not indicative of other people, you know. Right. And secondly, is if you tell somebody else that, you know, this is this is what I believe to be true. And if that person takes that at face value and they don't use exposure prevention protocol, they say, well, because my, my good friend told me not to. And I trust them. And if that person, you know, knowing that this virus has very different outcomes from person to person, right. that person may end up in the hospital on a ventilator. That could be a direct result of, of right. your personal perception influencing theirs. Um, so it, it can have some pretty, pretty awful outcomes. And um, yeah, to your point, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to purposely scare people, but we want them to understand the gravity of the situation. Um, yep. So yeah, you you make you make great points there. 
So when, you know, what you're saying basically is a classic case of cognitive dissonance. There's two ideas that are totally opposite that people cannot hold in their head at the same time. So their one idea is, okay, my experience is that this has not been too bad. You know, it didn't require hospitalization. Everybody was fine. No big deal. And then there's the other where this is big. This is terrible. This is scary. This is dangerous. And this is actually kind of a double-edged sword. First, there's cognitive dissonance because you have those two different ideas. This is not dangerous versus this is dangerous. Well, you can't believe both of those at the same time. So your brain chooses one. And our brains, even though they're wired for safety, are also somewhat wired for comfort. So they're going to tend to default to the more comfortable idea, which is, okay, I'm probably not gonna have a problem. It's not a big deal. Because if you go to the other side of this is a big deal, now your fear reaction is going to take place and your brain and body doesn't like to be afraid. So it's not going to typically let you choose that. And we are not as logical as we think. Even given all the facts, all the details, you know, there's so many studies that show like you can give all the facts, you can give all the details and people are still going to choose to believe what they want to believe, even in the face of facts. And so as a trainer or an educator, you have to be aware of some of that brain science and some of how our brains work in order to get past some of those barricades. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very, very important stuff. And that's something, you know, that safety professionals, you know, see, see a lot with any hazard is, uh, you know, one person picking up a 75 pound box doesn't mean anything. And one person that's gonna destroy their back, you know, so it's, it's right. interesting. You yep. make a great point. So what I'm wondering is, so at this point we talked about, you know, being able to, being able to develop the engagement and and convey the, the level of risk and the hazard and the expectations for the, for the preventative measures. So what are some different ways that these things can be validated? So if you're a safety professional and you provide this education and training. How can you go back out now and check to see if if these things are being done to standard? Yeah, absolutely, because that's that's the most important step, really, because teaching somebody only takes you so far. You really need to make sure that they're going to apply it in the workplace and in their life, because otherwise it's been a complete waste of time for everyone. So, you know, the typical way that we measure is we measure just knowledge and recall, you know, and that's typically done right in the classroom before you even go, you know, your typical knowledge test at the end of training, which can be helpful because it can help you see if there are any gaps in the information uh, and it can see just, you know, if people are recalling it right now. But you absolutely have to then check that later because there's a quick drop off of recall almost immediately after a training event, especially if that material is not immediately applied. So the next step is after you've done the basic training is to then reinforce that through a variety of different means, both didactic and experiential, and then assess it. Uh, and the best way to assess, but it is the hardest way to assess, is to observe people in action and see if they are doing that. Of course, people behave differently when they know they're under observation, so that's a challenge. Uh, so you can set up, you know, simulated environments like an exercise, and you can have people apply the skills. But again, because they know they're being evaluated, it's going to be a bit different. That's why, you know, when you call any call center, they say these calls are being recorded for training and quality purposes, because the idea is that somebody can then review 
how they behaved without the person knowing they're currently being observed so that you can get kind of a ground truth for what's happening. And the reason why this doesn't always happen is basically it's not super practical for most people. It's hard. It's a lot of work and it's somewhat subjective, but you absolutely have to reinforce and evaluate in the work environment or something as closely simulating it as possible. Uh, we saw this all the time in the Air Force where we would give the knowledge test. Everybody would, you know, score in the 90s and the 100s. They were great. And then a week later, we would take them to the field and ask them to perform the skills that they supposedly knew based on the test. And they were abysmal. They couldn't do any of it because the fact that you can recall information and the fact that you know facts does not translate to have you internalize that? Can you then do those things? Can you put them in practice? And so you have to test people putting them in practice in a variety of ways in order to get some good, truthful information on whether they're actually able to do so. I think demo performance in the classroom is a good way to do it, good way to practice it, good way to enhance the skills so that it becomes kind of second nature. And I think that's the key, especially with safety type things, is it has to become second nature. You have to not even be thinking about what you need to do. It just has to be the thing that you do every time. And so I think, you know, setting up drills, setting up exercises, um, spot checks, uh, having people train each other to make sure that they really know it. Because the best way you can learn something is to have to show somebody else, have to teach them. So those are all some different ways that you can kind of really test to see if people really got it. Uh, the knowledge test is just not sufficient. That's great, great information. Yeah, it's interesting with, with training. I, I remember a situation very clearly. I went to a new a new organization many years ago. It was one of the one of the several that I've worked with and they had they had advised me that they were going to do training the next day for disease exposure prevention, which at the time, you know, the, the main concerns were bloodborne pathogens, you know, hepatitis, uh, HIV, et cetera. And then, of course, tuberculosis. Yep. And, and then there was the um, H1N1 had been a couple years before that. And there were a couple other different threats, such as West Nile virus and things of that nature, but there was no Ebola at the time and there was no no uh, COVID-19. But um, I went to the training, I, it's brand new, so I just sat in, I didn't present anything or or instruct anything. And um, the training was an hour long and 50 minutes of it, like five zero, like almost like nine tenths of the training was um, discussing, here's the different Here's the different hazards. You know, you got hepatitis. Here's the characteristics of hepatitis A, B, C, etc. Mm -hmm. You know, here's the characteristics of tuberculosis. And then the evaluation was a, you know, a written exam. It was a didactic training, and then a written exam. And the students were expected to the objectives identify, you know, characteristics of this. And so they could tell you why hepatitis A or B or C was bad for you, and how it's transmitted. And mm -hmm why you wouldn't want to get it, but only 10 minutes of the training, if, if, if that, discussed how to prevent an exposure. 
Yep. You know, so for example, for tuberculosis, the you know airborne transmitted disease that the training didn't even cover at all. Here's the respiratory protection program. You know, here's the here's the medical evaluation to make sure that you're not going to fall over wearing a respirator. And here's the training on how to use it and don and doff it and get a seal. And here's the fit test and you know, which is absolutely crucial. You know, and then we found going into COVID-19 that for that reason, a number of people did not know historically they just never been trained. Right. And so going into this, you know, potentially deadly virus, they they didn't have those years of experience of using a, a respirator, even at N95, you know, filtering face piece. So yeah, to your point, you know, understanding not only why to be safe, but how to do it and understanding the steps and then being able to do that is just so important. And um if I recall, um, like you were mentioning a minute about the Air Force, you know, we had we did have that situation quite a bit where, um, you know, people would pass the test with, you know, flying colors, you know, that have 99% on the test, and but um, they wouldn't be able to to don the respirator, you know, they right? Have, they wouldn't be able to get a seal, or they wouldn't they'd forget to put the to put the put the canister in, you know, the filter and Interesting yep. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think that's the key is trainers typically have this building block approach and we've all been taught, you know, scaffolding and, and, you know, start small and build your way up. And I think especially in safety education and really practical application type work and with adults, you need to work backwards. You know, when you're teaching kids math, yes, you have to teach them the fundamentals first and then you work your way up. But when you're teaching adults how to do something, start at the end. Start at the end result and work backwards from there. And it's super counterintuitive and it's scary as an educator and it's super scary for the organization because the organization is like, nope, I have to prove that I told you these things. So there's this really big tendency and push to start at the beginning and work your way up because that's what we've all been taught. That's, you know, what will get us the boxes checked when we get evaluated by, you know, an external organization, you know, for compliance, those sorts of things. But really, really as an educator, the biggest thing you can do is start at the end goal. Okay. The end goal is that people can put on their protective gear and protect themselves from bloodborne pathogens correctly. Okay, so now start from there and say, okay, what what comes just before that and what comes before that? And start at that end and, you know, I mean, give them the gear in the classroom and let them touch it, let them play with it. Show, th show them other people wearing it. You know, start at that end and then work backwards. And if you have some time to give some of that fundamental education as supportive information, great. But if not, you know, do people really need to know all the facts about tuberculosis to protect themselves against it? Probably not. They need to know enough to realize why it's important to protect themselves. But ultimately, all you care about is do they do the skill correctly so that they are behaving appropriately. And so that's what has to be the focus in the training. Whether it's classroom-based training, field-based training, online training, doesn't matter. You start with the skill in mind. And that's not a typical thing in business in particular. It's typically, you know, what facts do they have to have? What knowledge can I pour into their head? But you have to look at the business environment and say, okay, 
when they go back to their jobs, what would indicate success? What behaviors would indicate success? And then you focus on that in the training and let them practice it and correct it and get to that behavior. You don't learn behavior by being told facts. You just don't. Yeah, definitely. And here's a, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this also. We were actually just talking about this the other day. So speaking of the Air Force, in the Air Force, the training curriculum, it goes through, you know, the, the particular Air, Air Force issue respirator, which, you know, it, it's changed. At the time, it was the MCU-2AP. I, I think now it's the, what, the XN-50. Right. Um, yep. I think so. So they added the the, the second filter on it. But mm-hmm. um, it goes through the, the, you know, explicit details on this particular respirator. And it talks about, you know, how to don it and how to doff it. And it talks about its its place in the overall, you know, they call it the chemical protective overgarment, you know, the but um they don't they don't really go into the the fact that it's a level C suit, you know, in the in the hazmat lineage. Right. But, but the thing I thought was interesting is that during the training, it doesn't go into here's how that relates to the OSHA you know, 29 CFR 1910.134 respiratory protection standard. And um, so for that reason, a lot of times until they get later in their career and learn it kind of on their own accord or in advanced training, young airmen, they won't understand that through the Air Force's processes, they cover, here's the medical evaluation you get, you know, in at the recruiter, first of all, then in basic training, you know, and then you get the training, of course, throughout your career. Then you get the fit testing when you get to your base and in, and in tech training. Matter of fact, in the chemical defense training facility, you know, they get the fit test three different times in one day. Um, right. So um, do you think that that's a good thing or, or a bad thing or, or indifferent that they don't cover that didactic information about the respiratory protection standard and just go straight to the, the nuts and bolts of the Air Force respirator? I think honestly, starting with the end in mind, the goal is that you can put that thing on, that you can wear it correctly, that you can tolerate it, that you can take it off, that you know when to put it on, that you know what it's gonna protect you against. Those are the things that are far more important at that stage. At later stages, you can work backwards and give some more of that didactic information. Again, it's, it's really just flipping the script on all of it instead of starting with the basic information and working your way up you start at the ultimate skill that you want them to be able to do because it's a life-saving measure and then you work backwards and as time allows and as people progress then you can cover that stuff so honestly i think i think it's a good thing that they started with the end you know here's the respirator here's how to wear it here's how it will protect you and then later on you can learn all that other detailed information and ultimately some people don't need or want that and so that's for me that's how i design my training is i put the key stuff right up front right on top and then there's opportunities for people to dig deeper if they want to because adults really do prefer to discover for themselves and pick and choose what they need and what they want out of the content and so You've got to be real careful to give them the most important thing right up front, right in their face, because otherwise they'll go right around that to the stuff that interests them. 
or they'll just shut you out altogether and, you know, think about last night's football game or whatever it is, because that's more interesting. So I think starting with that end and saying, okay, here's, here's the key thing. Let's do that first and then we'll provide it. And I think the military experience is unique in that it's common in almost all the career fields to focus on how it's done in the military and then it's not really translated. So that's why so many people, even going in from one career field to another that's fairly similar from military life to civilian life, it's not always an easy transfer because the military focuses on, this is how it's done here now. And so I think the military could do a better job of making sure that when people progress in their careers and get to the point where they are going to get out either, you know, when they retire after 20 years or even after a four year hitch, that they're able to now go back out into the world and apply those skills in the real world. But their goal is to keep you alive right now. And so that's why they teach that key fact first. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and that it's that's very applicable, you know, for for safety professionals, even you know, outside the military or or law enforcement or fire protection where you know, if we do that risk assessment, then of course the risk is going to be much higher that if we don't teach somebody how to don the respirator and keep themselves safe, especially with a you know a pandemic or a different pathogen or whatnot, then that that's much more urgent than them being able to articulate the specifics of the regulation. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, and um, that's equally applicable, you know, for our our safety professional members that are, you know, in, in hospitals and whatnot is that the, the important part, you know, up front is for people to be medically able to use the respirator, be trained to don and off it and get a seal on it and being able to um, know where to find it, make sure they don't have facial hair that breaks the seal and then being able yep. to dispose of it when they're done. So. Exactly. It's basically you take that Eisenhower matrix, the urgent important matrix, and you cover the urgent and important stuff first, and then work your way back around the matrix to the not urgent and less important. And education typically starts with that less urgent, less important, because we think about it as that's the building block, that's the stepping stone to get you there. But adults don't really need as many building blocks because uh, they have a wealth of experience of their own, which can be good, but it can also be a challenge because that experience could have told them that they don't need this information. So you really have to prove to them why they need it, and then you have to give them the skill, and then you can work backwards to all that other information. Yeah, that's great. And I like how that ties into the, you know, the safety improvement cycle there is everything is prefaced by the you know, hazard identification and the risk assessment, and then we determine what's needed to be safe, and then we're able to validate that, and then the things that are of less risk, such as, you know, didactic knowledge, then we can cover that after everybody's safe, you know. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can think about it from that perspective, even just thinking about, like, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like, you have to be fed and watered before you can move up to the next level, you know, so if people are not safe, then all that other information doesn't matter because if they're not safe, something bad is gonna happen. So cover those most urgent, most important basic needs first mm -hmm. and then come back around later. Because again, like I said, you really have to reinforce training at regular intervals or it's going to disappear no matter how well you taught it the first time or how well you think people learned it the first time, there's a huge drop off, like 90% drop off within 24 hours of being taught something. 
unless they immediately use it. So that reinforcement cycle is absolutely key. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, this is um, this here is the the, the million dollar question I always ask everybody is. So knowing you know everything that you know about about um, you know training and education and adult learning, and then of course safety and emergency management and you know counter seaburn. So if if you could shake a magic wand and pick something to change about about any of those areas or or anything else, uh, what would be the one thing that you'd like to see changed? I think I'd really like to see the approach to education changed. I'd like to see us recognize adults as adults with a wealth of experience who ultimately need just what they need just to do that specific task. Anything extraneous is great, wonderful, fine for those who want it, but we're busy. We have a lot to think about. We have a lot to do. We don't have time to, or the brain space ultimately, to hold on to all that stuff. So give adults just what they need to do just the task that you need them to do initially and worry about all the other stuff later. And I know that's super hard in a highly regulated environment because the regulatory agencies have, you know, a whole checklist of things that you're supposed to prove that you've taught people. Uh, so provide that, but provide it in a way where people can access it, where it's available, but where the focus has been on that key important skill. And reinforcing. I think that's the thing that's missing in uh, adult learning in a corporate or healthcare or any other environment is, you know, in the military, we drilled stuff all the time. In real life, outside the military, you know, you take your training once a year and that's it. It's a distinct event. Whereas, you know, learning is a lifelong overtime process. And I think we need to translate that into how we train adults in the job world, whatever job it is. And especially in jobs where safety is absolutely vital. Absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely Definitely great feedback, great perspective. <clears throat> well, heck, um, I know you're very busy, so I don't want to type your whole day, <laughs> but we, we certainly thank you for being here. It's a great conversation, and as always, you're you're always welcome back anytime. Uh, we'd love to have you on some of our panels. Yeah, but, um, thank you. I get yeah, passionate so. about this stuff. I'm, I'm a nerd at heart. I love education. I love training, and, you know, my emergency management background makes me think about the safety stuff, too, which is a unique blend for sure. <laughs> yeah, I can absolutely. panic, but I can teach you how to panic the right way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I always say, I'm, I, you know, my my whether whether people take it as a good or a bad thing or or indifferent is I get, you know, I by trade I'm you know professionally paranoid and hypochondriacal. Right. But uh. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Appreciate you being here. Um, but uh, yeah, for everybody else listening, if you haven't checked it out, um, definitely check out our, our Anchor podcast channel. We're on anchor.fm slash ASSP-HCPS or yeah, ASSP-HCPS-HealthBeat. And it's got all of our episodes. We got up to 26 now. So we got a lot of great topics, uh, including Kelly's discussion today about, about training and education. 
So a lot of great stuff there. And otherwise, we have a lot of great webinars. So we're going to have a webinar coming up uh, October 28th. We're going to be talking about the OSHA uh, COVID-19 standard that just came out, the emergency temporary standard. And then on November 5th, we'll be talking about preventing fatigue and burnout syndrome. And that's going to be with uh, Camilo Olivieri, who you may recognize. We just did a, a podcast with him. So uh, we hope to see you, quote unquote, see you there. But otherwise, um, Kelly, again, we sure appreciate you being here. And um, everybody, we'll talk to you real soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me.